Thank you for joining us here at Life Church. It's an honor to share God's word with you today. Our prayer is that you will connect with Jesus Christ as you hear his word online. We'd love to have you visit one of our upcoming gatherings. For more information, visit us online at www.liferva.org or contact our church offices and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Let's go now to one of our recent services where you can experience a life-giving message from God's Word. So today we're going to begin a three-week series called Kingdom. And uh, this series will be focusing on portions of Jesus' teachings from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a passage that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus called his disciples to himself up on the Mount of Olives one day, and the crowd filled in all around, and they began to hear Jesus teach. And the words that he spoke were different than any other religious teaching of that day. He spoke with authority, and he spoke with power, and he revealed truths that were in many ways paradigm-shattering truths. All their lives, they had heard things one way, and now Jesus was revealing things in a new and unique perspective, one that they had never considered before. Actually, we began the series a few weeks ago, and during that message, I shared with you some important background information, but I'm going to reshare it today for those of you that may not have been here or maybe forgot. Uh, To study the Sermon on the Mount, you must understand that Jesus' theme for his teaching that day was the kingdom of heaven. Many of us have an idea of what I mean when I say kingdom, but, and just as the hearers that day had an idea of what the word kingdom means, it's shaped by our knowledge and experience here on earth. The kingdoms of this world are built around money and ideologies and military might and conquest. They are built around dominance and many times overwhelming force. They are built around ambition, desire, political agenda, socioeconomic ideologies. In our individual lives, many are built, building for themselves their own kingdom through wealth or through accumulation of real estate or through business or status or popularity or fame. You name it, people will use it to build up to themselves a kingdom that honors what they want to put out to the world. So as Jesus began his teaching that day, he takes a concept that they are familiar with, a concept we are familiar with, and he builds upon it by challenging everything they'd ever believed about how you build a kingdom and what a kingdom should look like. They had an idea. They had seen kingdoms come in and dominate them. They, if you take the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians and then the Medes and Persians and then the Greeks, finally the Romans, everyone jockeying for this small piece of land that opened trade routes to Asia, Africa, and Europe. They longed for the day that a kingdom would rise up and kick out these occupying kingdoms and that it held them hostage in their own land, robbed them of their wealth and their resources, and created hardships in their own homes. So with that knowledge already kind of hovering in the area, Jesus began his teaching to all who cared to stop by and listen. During his teaching, he shares with those in attendance that day, and really with each of us who read the Word of God today, principles of life within his kingdom. And this is important because the idea that Jesus had of kingdom And the idea that they had of kingdom, and many times the idea that we have of kingdom, is totally separate. They are expecting military might, but Jesus had different ideas. He deals with the character of the citizens of his kingdom. He deals with the responsibilities of the citizens of his kingdom. He gives a model for prayer, which is the communication system in his kingdom. He commands us to share the message of his kingdom. And he commands that the members of his kingdom are to be fruitful 
and to be obedient to the, to the commands of the king. When you understand that Jesus' primary goal in the Sermon on the Mount is to establish and to maintain not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that is alive in the hearts and the citizens of the kingdom of God. This message comes alive when you see it with new eyes and new perspective because it's not about setting up something on the earth, but it's about something that changes us forever through the power of his spirit. We might say if it was us who was doing this, and a few weeks ago we talked about kingdom blessings where Jesus began his sermon by giving us some distinct qualities he was looking for, and if it was up to us, it would probably look a lot different. We would probably say things like, blessed are the strong, blessed are the rich, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the gifted, blessed are the talented, blessed are the beautiful, blessed are the attractive. But that's not where Jesus started. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are spiritually hungry and thirsty, blessed are those who show mercy, blessed are the pure, Blessed are those who make peace. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And then moving down to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus began using this teaching method that today we would call constructivism, where he shares something they know, a foundational principle that they understand, and he opens their thinking to something they don't know, building on the foundation of what they already knew. Now, you may have heard it said that you shouldn't murder. That's what Jesus started with. But I say, if you're even angry at somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. What? That's tough, right? You have heard it said that you mustn't commit adultery. Good. But I say, you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Whoa. Right? That's troublesome. You have heard it said that a man can divorce his wife by just telling her, I want a divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And see, there's probably a lot of people right now, even looking at that verse, going, oh, I can beat my wife then, as long as we ain't unfaithful, I'm good. You violating all kinds of other principles of the word of God. I'll just go there. But that's tough, right? That, that's different than what they'd always heard. Throughout this whole discourse, Jesus is sharing things that are different than the way they've ever thought of them before. Like this one. He says, you have heard it said you must not break vows, especially vows made to the Lord. But I say, just don't make vows. Say yes, say no. Because the things you're swearing by, you can't control. Because people were swearing by the heavens. They ain't have no control in the heavens. That's God's territory. You're swearing by the earth. And the earth is God's footstool, and you ain't big enough to control a lick of it. You can't, even control, you can't even swear by your own head because you can't control whether one hair falls out or not or turns gray or not. Why are you making all these vows? He says, hey, don't even do it. You know, people, they'll run around, they'll swear on their mama's grave. Like they have the power to put their mom in the grave or not in the grave, right? No, no, no. Stop the swearing. Stop saying you're going to do something, putting all this extra umph on it. Just say yes or no. Do the best you can. Don't make all these vows because you end up violating them and you violate your witness and you violate who you are because you're not capable of keeping vows that you can't even put your faith in to begin with because you can't control what you're swearing on. Throughout this whole discourse by Jesus, I just imagine folks hearing these words and feelings as if these concepts seem so foreign, so different 
so out of the norm, almost as if the world had turned upside down. What they know, they didn't know. What was up that morning seemed down. What was left was now right. Everything was changing. Somehow felt different. You ever woke up feeling that way? You woke up one morning and the whole world seemed to have tilted off its axis. Everything seemed to have shifted. What you knew you didn't know anymore. And what you believed to be true seemed to be a lie. That's where my life was in 2010 when I first began studying the Sermon on the Mount. I had read it many times, don't get me wrong, but I'd never studied it like I began to study it in 2010. I was so confused. I would say I was having a crisis of faith. Everything I had ever believed, taught, preached, shared with others seemed to be blowing up in my face. Mistakes I'd made were haunting me every day and at every turn. And in pride, I shook my fist at the world and tried to keep going with and thought, you know, I'll make it happen no matter what everybody says, even though my world was crumbling all around me and falling apart. I prayed to God and said, Lord, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't care what my mom and dad believed. I don't care what the church taught me. I don't care what I even taught others myself. My world is upside down, and I just want to know you for me. Help me to discover a new relationship with you that is based on you and your word and nothing else. And I felt him direct me to the Sermon on the Mount where I studied for nearly 18 months, three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And some of that I'm sharing with you this next three weeks. Jesus had invited them to be a part of his kingdom, just as he has invited us to be a part of his kingdom. But his kingdom was different than they thought. It's not what you think it is either. In fact, it was so different you might say it was upside down. And I've used this title before on a message uh, I'm not one who's unafraid to use the same title, uh, but um, I know there's one person here who will remember it because he told me a few weeks ago that it was a message he remembered from 12 years ago, but it's called the Upside Down Kingdom. That's what I'm calling it today, Upside Down Kingdom. Jesus gave his disciples the feeling of being upside down when he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He begins to espouse some pretty foreign concepts to many of them. Most of them had gathered that day to hear Jesus teaching, and they'd been students of the law, or at minimum, they'd been raised in the synagogue and in the temple, and they believed the Mosaic law, the prophets, the writings of the Talmud, which were the rabbinical writings to help interpret the law and the prophets. Jesus, I believe, in some ways came to set the religious establishment on its ear. Just like he turned over tables in the temple spiritually, he came to upset the apple cart, to turn over the traditions and practices which they claimed to be in the name of God, but had really become nothing more than their own pride and ego. But more than that, he came to set the kingdom of darkness on its ear. And as part of that process, he topples our flesh and our humanity over. He espouses a lifestyle choice that is completely opposite of what we are typically taught to think and believe. Which brings me to my text, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. Jesus speaking says, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands you carry his gear for a mile... Carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Let me read it to you from the message version. It's kind of the way we would say it. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. 
Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. To truly understand what Jesus was saying here, you have to understand a little about the Jewish law. It was written as part of the Mosaic Law, Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. Jesus is quoting literally from this passage. It says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. This part of the law was given as a rule to regulate the decisions of judges. They were to take eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and to inflict burning for burning. As a ruling in a court matter, this solution would have been considered just. Jesus did not fault the rule when applied by those in authority or judgment. Jesus' problem that day was that the Jews had extended it to private conduct and made it the rule by which to take revenge. They considered themselves justified by this rule to inflict the same injury to others that they had received. Jesus declares that the law really had no reference to private revenge, that it was given only to regulate the magistrate or the judge, and that their private conduct was to be governed by different principles. Now, Jesus is not saying here, if you see your family being murdered, that you should just stand there, watch them do it, and suggest they take your brother's family too. That's not what he's saying. He does, however, confine himself to smaller matters, to things of comparatively trivial nature, and says that in these, we and the kingdom are better served to accept and endure the wrong than to enter into strife against those who would harm us. The first case is where we're smacked or hit on the cheek. Rather than contend and fight, we should take it patiently and turn the other cheek. Now, some of y'all, I can see your hackles rising right now. Most of us, if someone smacks us upside the head, we're coming up swinging. We may not even look to see who did it. We're leading with the fist. We aren't waiting to see if they want us to turn the other cheek. We're going to want a piece of that action, and we want it now. We're coming up for a fight. But that's not how Jesus expects his people to act in the kingdom. Why? It's upside down. It's an upside-down kingdom. In the second case, Jesus gives us the example of someone trying to sue you to take your shirt. Literally, the shirt off your back. And Jesus says to not only give them your shirt, but maybe you ought to gift wrap your coat as well. The Jews wore two principal garments, an interior and an exterior. The interior here, called a tunic or shirt, was made commonly of linen. It encircled the whole body, extending from the neck to the knees, and had long or short sleeves. Over that was commonly worn an upper garment, here called a cloak or a coat. It was long enough to be wrapped around the body, and whenever they were laboring or working in the fields or doing any type of uh, laborious work, they would throw off that, and they would perform the work in just the tunic. Jesus said, if an adversary wished to obtain at law one of those garments, rather than contend with him, let him have the other also. Not sell it to him, not put up a yard sale sign in your front yard and say, hey, you can buy it. Just give it to him. Everybody say it's upside down. The third thing Jesus deals with, he says, whoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. In Jesus' day, they lived in Palestine, but they were occupied by foreign governments, foreign powers. First, they'd been conquered by the Assyrians. I mentioned it a moment ago. They took them into captivity. 
Later, the Assyrians were taken captive themselves by the Babylonians, and then whoever was left back in Israel at that time was also taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. They had defeated the Assyrians. Then the Babylonians were overtaken by the Medes and Persians in that great scene in the book of Daniel where Daniel and the people are seeing a hand writing on the wall. The Medes and Persians were literally coming in at that time to take over the Babylonian Empire. And then a king comes to the throne named Artaxerxes who has a man by the name of Nehemiah as his cupbearer. He allows Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And he finds that there are people there who had begun to return home, but they were completely unprotected. They had no walls to protect them. And so in record time, he rebuilds the walls. But after roughly 100 years, they found themselves being made captive one more time. Uh, anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? He sent out his army all over the world to occupy the known world. And the Greeks came and they occupied the land of Israel. And after a period of time, the Romans came and they kicked out the Greeks but the Greek army, while it was gone, the Greek influence was still there. So when Jesus was born, the kingdom he was born into, he was born into a world that was occupied by Romans, spoke up to four to five different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Italian. It was truly a melting pot of culture and influence. It was the New York City of its day, in essence, when you take what the influences were from Rome and Greece. And then the Jews' greatest desire was to have their homeland to themselves and have their promised land that they had heard about from the days of Moses to be theirs and theirs alone. Many of them believed that perhaps Jesus would be the guy to make that happen. And then Jesus says these upside-down statements about what his kingdom is going to be like. And at that time, there was a law that told anyone who was a public authority figure, soldier, Jamie, you'll love this, mail carrier, government official, they were permitted to compel any person, any horse, any boat, any ship or other vehicle that they might need for the quick transmission of the king's commandments or just because they were tired and better than everybody else, if you were asked to go with them and carry their load for a mile, you had no choice but to do it. This is the custom to which Jesus was speaking when he says, rather than resist a public authority figure requiring your attendance and aid for a distance of one mile, go peaceably twice the distance and give them two. A Roman mile was a 1,000 paces. Jesus said, offer to go the second mile. Now, for those of you who are willing to do math with me today, and some of you may have already thought of this, if you went the second mile to do what Jesus was talking about, taking the responsibility of servanthood the second mile, to get back to where you started, you now had to walk how many miles? So a lot of people think, oh, you just do double the work. No, 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 it's four times the work. Jesus didn't say the custom was fair. He didn't say it was right. He simply said, if you're asked to go one, go two. Everybody say upside down. What Jesus was really trying to give us was a picture of servanthood. You see, in the kingdom, being a servant's not an option. It's required. The Bible tells us that Jesus became a servant. Philippians 2 and 7 tells us that Jesus made himself of no reputation but took upon himself the form of a servant. Jesus told his disciples in Mark 9, 35, it says, And he sat down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. He calls us to be servants, to serve one another. Therefore, as a member of his kingdom, we have a responsibility to serve one another. Now, that's upside down. 
Compared to the way our world lives and the way the world teaches us to live, that's upside down. We live in a selfish, self-serving world, and to say, I'm not here to gain, but I'm here to lose. I'm not here to be first, but I want to be last. I'm not here to, to take over, but I'm here to be a servant for everybody. That is upside down. Let's go back to Jesus' sermon for a moment. Matthew 5, 43. It says, you've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. Now, you have to understand, they hated tax collectors. I mean, we don't like them either, but they hated them. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from everyone else? Even pagans do that. Pagans were referring to people that didn't worship Jehovah, the one true God, anybody that worshiped other stuff. And with all the cultural mix that they had between the Greeks and the Romans, they were worshiping a whole lot of gods. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let me read that to you from the message as well. It says, you're familiar with the old written law. Love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. But I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For when you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves, this is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone regardless the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to all those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. This, for me, is where Jesus really shows the true colors of his kingdom. This is where Jesus really shows us what his kingdom is supposed to look like. Is it different? Yes. It is different than anything they had ever heard, and it's different than anything you will ever hear in the commonplace in America. It's different than anything we've ever thought in our fleshly lives. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Are you kidding me? What kind of kingdom is that? It's upside down. Why would God expect that of us? Why would Jesus even begin to ask us to do those things? It's so twisted. It's so warped. It's upside down. Actually, no, it's being like Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 45. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to, do both, the, to both the evil and the good, since rain on the just and the unjust. Then verse 46, if you love those only who love you, what reward is that? Even corrupt tax collectors. If you kind only to your friends, how are you different from everybody else? Even pagans do that. Jesus didn't speak those words that he didn't intend to live up to himself. Every word that he spoke, he backed up with action. If Jesus says, love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, then you better believe he backs it up with actions. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, When we were utterly helpless, 
Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love to us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Sin puts us at enmity or enemy of God, opposition to God. Sin makes us an enemy of the kingdom of God. And Paul tells us that while we were an enemy of God, while we were in opposition to God, while the life that we were leading was in no way pleasing to him, while we were still sinners, he loved us enough to come and die in our place. No wonder he could say, I tell you, don't just love your friends, but love your enemies as well. He was literally living out a life that was going to show that in its fullest completion. Because no greater love hath anyone than a man would lay down his life for his friends and certainly for his enemies. Can you say amen? We think like verse 7 says, on some rare chance, in some rare instance for a righteous, godly, good person, maybe I'd be willing to die for them, but certainly not for someone who's my enemy someone who opposes me, someone who is in direct opposition to everything I hold dear, but not Jesus. Oh, no, he was willing to do it for the ungodly, the rotten, the broken, the messed up, the unrighteous, to those who have held captive to sin. Everybody say it. It's upside down. <laughs> I remember several years ago I had a, a person in my life, and, yeah, I, I would categorize them in that enemy category, right? They were... We were definitely in opposition, right? Uh, and um, I'll never forget, I was praying right over there next to the booming subwoofer that probably tore out my hearing that night. Um, I was kneeling there praying, and I was praying about a bunch of other stuff, and this person just, their face came into my mind. And I remember the Lord saying, you need to pray for them. And I'm like, no, hoo nope, sorry, not doing it. I, I will pray that, you know, they're walking down the street and a flower pot falls on their head, but I am not praying <laughs> blessings on them. Nope, not doing it. And I literally felt the Lord say, your prayers will be hindered until you learn to pray blessings on them. And I was like, oh, my God. Because I literally, this person, there was, there was hatred built up in my heart. I'm not ashamed to admit it. It was there. This person had done a lot of rotten things to me and my family, and... Uh, they deserved the hate that I had, but Jesus was asking me to get rid of it. And uh, I remember I began to pray for them, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done, but I did every day. I said, Lord, I pray blessings on them. I don't want them to be my friend, but I pray blessings on them. And that's how I prayed every day. And I don't know if they ever were blessed. They might be falling off a cliff. I don't know. Either way, I'm okay. But, but, from that moment, I felt the hand of God come back into my life and began to restore things into my life because I learned to pray for my enemies. There's something powerful about breaking down our pride and ego enough because you can't stay mad, angry, and hate towards someone that you're also praying for. It's impossible. You can't honestly and truly pray for them if you mean it and hate them at the same time. 
And so learning to pray for your enemies may be one of the toughest things you'll ever do, but it will also be one of the most rewarding things you ever do because it will remove toxic stuff out of your life that you don't need to be there. You don't have to invite them in to be your best friend, but learning to get rid of the toxicity out of your life so that you can walk forward in faith in other areas is so important. And so I learned that day how important that really was. And so I encourage you today, learn to pray blessings on your enemies. Again, I'm not saying you got to pray that they get a Mercedes or a new home, but get rid of the toxicity in your life. Turn them over to God. Can you say amen? amen. Why does Jesus call us to live in an upside-down kingdom? Sometimes we feel like we've fallen down the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland, and just like Alice, everything seems somehow different than we've been taught it, we've been taught it supposed to be. Everything in the kingdom is somehow upside-down. Everything in the kingdom is different. Down is up, up is down, right is left, left is right. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a declaration to make. God is not asking you to live in an upside-down kingdom. In fact, God is simply trying to restore his kingdom to what he intended it to be. See, when the devil introduced sin into the world through the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, sin flipped the script. It flipped the kingdom of heaven on its ear. God was not taken by surprise, but his kingdom on the earth was soon living in an opposite manner of the way God intended. What God had intended to be a kingdom of relationship between God and man, sin had caused separation and broken off intimacy between God and his creation. There were pockets, isolated incidents of man discovering intimacy with God, but by and large, what God had intended for humanity had been superseded by our fleshly desires, our desires to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, and thus sin turned the intended kingdom of God upside down. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says these statements that in the ears of the hearer sound strange. In our minds, even today, they seem crazy. Why? Because we have lived our lives bound in sin and stuck in our iniquity. And what seems strange to our ears is actually very right. Jesus intended from the beginning for you and I to love one another. He intended from the beginning for you and I to serve one another. Now, the only question you have to ask yourself is, does Jesus' words seem upside down to you today, or do they seem right? If they seem right, it's because as a Christian, you are maturing. You are becoming more like him. And in so doing, what once seemed like an upside-down kingdom has become a right-side-up kingdom. Matthew 5 and 48, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, that sounds great, and I'm looking at it like, okay, perfection, that seems like an impossible task. But let me read it to you from the message. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. You're kingdom subjects now. Live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously to others the way God lives toward you. God, who am I? What's my purpose? You're a member of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Now live like it. Live as I would live. Show generosity. Serve one another. Love one another. Offer mercy. Offer grace. Don't judge. Extend mercy. Live in such a way that you turn the kingdom of darkness upside down. Right. If the musicians and singers would come. Some of you today, the devil has whispered in your ear that living in the kingdom of heaven requires too much. That God must be crazy to expect you to do so much, to give up so much. 
He's been whispering to you that you're weird, that the teachings of Christ are strange. Let me tell you something today. Jesus came to set his kingdom right, to restore relationship with his creation. And today, you and I are not upside down. We are not topsy-turvy. We are in a secure kingdom. We are in a kingdom that will not fail, that will last. We are in a kingdom whose foundations are sure and solid. And over the next two weeks, I'm going to talk to you a lot about the foundations that this kingdom is built upon. We are part of a kingdom who the very knowledge of our king causes earthquakes in hell. It causes demons to tremble at the recognition of the power and the majesty of the king of this kingdom. Welcome to a kingdom that will endure forever. This kingdom is not upside down. It is right side up. And the only way it feels upside down is because our thinking has been warped by the sin and the degradation of our world. And it's time we as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, rise and stand on the foundations that were built before the world was ever created, a foundation that will last forever. Aren't you thankful to be part of a kingdom that's going to last? Being part of the kingdom, as you read, as we read in the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like we find an overriding theme of servanthood in this chapter. And that's my call today. God is calling us to be members of his kingdom, yes. But it's more than just signing a role and saying, I'm a member of the kingdom of heaven. We have to live it out by learning to serve one another. If you want victory in your life, if you want to overcome in your life, if you want God's presence to guide and lead you every day of your life, you've got to learn the power of servanthood and learning to serve others. Jesus came, had no responsibility to do any of this, but gave himself the lowest form of humanity, that of servanthood. And when he was the king of everything, took upon himself the role of a servant so that he could serve you and me. How can I do any less? And so today, that's my call today. I'm calling members of the kingdom of God to serve. To serve him, yes. To serve one another, yes. To serve our world, yes. In the process of that, you know what that means? That means sometimes people are going to do us wrong. And we could rise up in revenge, or we could do as the Bible says, and walk away with a meek and humble spirit. We can. There's people that are going to try to take from members of the kingdom. Jesus says we're supposed to give it up willingly. There's no sense in fighting. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't fit our our model, but that's what we're called to. There's others that are going to come and they're going to say awful things against you. They're going to you could call them your enemy if you'd like. But Jesus says, "You know what? I want you to pray for them. I want you to love them." And in so doing, Paul says later that that heaps coals of fire on their head. I ain't going to lie to you, when I prayed for my enemy, I was picturing the coals of fire. I'm just being honest. But Jesus says, hey, pray for them. Love them. It's easy to love people that love you. It's a whole lot harder to love those that don't. This morning, you'd all stand with me all over this house. This morning, Amy came to my office. If you know, if you know anybody who's a servant in the kingdom, God, it's Amy McIntyre. You say amen. And she came to my office. She does it every Sunday to check see if I need anything. And I'm so appreciative of that. She came in and, you know, with all the flooring, we kind of redone everything back. And I have a spot in my office that it's just kind of a special spot for me. Um, it's on top of my filing cabinet. It has uh, my grandfather's Bible, my mom's Bible, and 
five Bibles that I've wore out over the last uh, 29, 30 years. Uh, and they're all there in one little spot. And, uh, there's a towel that lays across the top of it. And uh, on the towel is this inscription that says, My ministry, my towel. of our church and taught him a lesson called my ministry my towel and he gave each of us a towel that day we got down on our hands and feet and knees and we washed one another's feet and I don't know what happened to everybody else's towel but from that day forward mine has always held a very visible place in my office whether it was here or whether it was at home I've always kept it where I can see because it's a reminder
about his kingdom, to love others, to love him, of course, but then to put everything above us and be willing to be not first but last, to be not master but servant. It's so different than the way that we are taught in everyday life. And so to me, in order to live it out, in order to actually accomplish it, we have to settle some things and be willing to place some things as foundational pieces into who we are. And so over the next three weeks, that's my goal, is to place some foundational stones in us that the kingdom of heaven can be built in our life from. And one of those foundational stones is this idea of being a servant. That's such an important part of the kingdom of God. And if we don't live that out, we can never hope to bring others into the kingdom. The reason I think our this kingdom of heaven looks so different than the kingdoms of this world. The reason I think it's there is because there's something different about it that causes it to be seen. If you're like everybody else, nobody notices. That's why Jesus said, hey, 
love your enemies. What? Oh, you want to love who who you love. You want to love everybody does that. I want you to do something different. Love those that don't love you. Even the tax collectors like the people that like them, right? He's pointing out that, hey, we have a responsibility to do something different because different attracts. Different will make you stand out. Different will allow people to see there is something unique about them that I think I want to check out. And that's what brings people into the kingdom of heaven because it's different than what they've ever heard before. It allows you to go into your workplace and be a light that shines when darkness pervades. It's what allows you to go into your school and to shine forth when darkness permeates every part of it. It's what allows you to step into a hospital room where sickness is at and pray and be and somebody be healed. It's, it's what allows you to do the things in your neighborhood that nobody else does and yet people come to see you. Why? Because you're the one making a difference. Because you're living like nobody else. Because that's what the kingdom of heaven calls us to do. And so repeat after me today. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you called me. I thank you that you lived a life as an example of servanthood. Now allow me to portray that, to live that, to be that in everything that I do. Let me serve my neighbors. Let me serve my church members. Let me serve the people in my life. Let me be a servant to my family. Let me be a servant to my friends. And most importantly, let me learn to serve my enemies. Those that would be against me, those that would oppose me, let me learn to love them and pray for them just like you did for us. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, let us live it out and we'll honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's thank him all over this house. Father, we thank you. We bless and honor you, oh God. In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for watching. Be sure to subscribe to this channel so you never miss one of our videos or live streams in the future. Also, take a moment and share this with a friend. Be sure to join us 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. each week live as we celebrate Jesus together here at Life Church. God bless you.